Thank you guys so much. It's a beautiful day today. We're going to pick back up in John chapter 10 this morning. So if you have your Bible, go ahead and find John chapter 10. And we are going to continue what we began to look at last week. I told you last week was going to be sort of a part one. Today was going to be a part two. Because we're continuing to look at the same conversation that Jesus was having in John chapter 10. Last week was his third I am statement of the seven in the gospel of John. And Jesus said, I am the door. And we talked about the picture, the word picture that Jesus is painting there in John 10 of the sheep fold. And I showed you a picture of what one of those looked like, that it's a, um, a big circular um, build out of, out of rocks and stone is where the shepherd would keep his sheep. Uh, it was to guard and protect the sheep that were on the inside of the fold. It was also to defend and secure the sheep from attack from the outside. And it was also featured with one single opening that was just big enough for one sheep to go through. And that was to give access out of the fold into the pastures and the provisions that the shepherd would find and make for the sheep and so Jesus says, I am the gate. And I'll remind you of the big point from last week. Jesus is the single passage to eternal and abundant life. Jesus is that door. He is that gate. And there's only one way in and out. And he, he makes himself the gate into the kingdom. And so he continues this picture in the same passage where we, we went through verse 10 last week. We're going to pick up with verse 11 in chapter 10, and same conversation, uh, same context, same word picture that he's painting with this illustration of a shepherd and the sheep, but he makes his fourth I am statement almost immediately after he says, I am the gate. Um, and it's just a further, deeper illustration into the nature of Jesus' relationship with those who follow him. And so I want us to look at that and just just be reminded this morning of who he is. Verse 11 in John chapter 10, Jesus says, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. The hired hand, since he is not the shepherd and doesn't own the sheep, leaves them and runs away when he sees a wolf coming. The wolf then snatches and scatters them. This happens because he is a hired hand and doesn't care about the sheep. So Jesus in verse 11 makes this fourth I am statement and he says, I am the good shepherd. And were we living in that day and time and he's talking to the Pharisees who were students of the Old Testament, the very first thing I believe their minds would have gone back to was one, a, a, a passage of Old Testament scripture that maybe your mind goes to, and that's Psalm 23. They would have been familiar with the Psalms. They would have, have, have worshiped and sang to those Psalms. And that Psalm, beautiful, poetic piece by David, inspired by the Holy Spirit. Their minds would have gone right to Psalm 23, I believe, when Jesus says these words, I am the good shepherd. Because... David says in Psalm 23, what is the first line of Psalm 23? The Lord is my shepherd. So Jesus, again, in this I am statement, 
is going right back to the Old Testament and their understanding of God from the Old Testament and saying the, the shepherd that David wrote his psalm about was me. I am, you remember that, that all-encompassing, I am the I am of the Old Testament. And he says, I am the good shepherd. And that word good has meanings. It, it, it means the noble shepherd, the perfect shepherd, the authentic shepherd, the preeminent shepherd. Of all shepherds, there is one that's good, and it's Jesus. We sang about it already when we sing those songs your your name is higher your name is greatest it's, it, it's, it's there's no other shepherd jesus says that is better than him he is the greatest he's preeminent over all and so we think about psalm 23 and several uh, it, it's been a couple of years two or three years ago um, that we walked through on a sunday morning and we did a series through psalm 23 and we looked at every description that David makes of God in that psalm and how beautiful and how full and how rich it is. And if you want to go back and review that, you can. I don't remember how many weeks long that one was. It wasn't as long as Nehemiah, but it was a big one. Um, but go back and, and, and re be reminded of what that psalm says. But in these verses in John 10, Jesus is obviously connecting himself to um, those illustrations of sheep and shepherd in the Old Testament. And it wasn't just in Psalm 23. That picture is, is scattered all throughout the Old Testament in God's description of how he relates and how he, his, about his relationship with his people. But I think in these verses, there are, there are three specific things that come out in, in these things that Jesus says in John chapter 10. Characteristics of him as a shepherd. And remember also what you'll see him do is the same thing he did last week when he said, I am the gate. You remember he's comparing himself, he's contrasting himself from the fake religious leaders, the false religious leaders that the Pharisees were. The disingenuous leaders, the ones who, who were in it for their own purpose, who were selfish. They weren't they, 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 they weren't the real shepherds of Israel. They wanted to make themselves think they were. They wanted to make the people think that they were. But Jesus says, you're not. And so this is how he contrasts that. He says, first, there's three things. And that's a little Baptist three-point message this morning. Number one, Jesus gives his life for his sheep. From the very beginning, he says, what makes him the good shepherd is the fact that he surrenders and gives up his life for his sheep. And then he paints this picture. And in verses 11 through 13, he talks about the hired hand. Now, already in the verses before, he's basically called out the religious leaders and called them thieves and robbers. And he says so many of them are, are malicious in nature. Their, their desire is to, they have no care for the sheep whatsoever. And if what they do damages and brings pain and hurt, it doesn't matter to them because they're just trying to get what they want out of the sheep, trying to take life from them. The hired hand is another illustration of the type of leaders that were in Israel, but it, it's a little bit different. A hired hand is not like a thief. Thieves seek to destroy the sheep 
But the hired hand is the one, it's not like a thief or a robber who comes in and is not supposed to be there. The hired hand is supposed to be there. He's, he, he's appointed by the shepherd. He's, he's hired to, to care for the sheep, to, to lead them. But the difference between Jesus as the good shepherd and the hired hand is the investment. The investment is different. And, I, I, and there are two ways that I believe that the investment is different. One, his motivation is different. The motivation of the shepherd to care for the sheep is love. The motivation for the hired hand is money. Why do, you, why do you do whatever job you do that you're hired for? You do it to get a paycheck. And that's not a bad thing, but for the shepherd, that's a bad motivation. And for, and for people and, and men who are called to shepherd congregations, men who are called into ministry, the motivation for money is, is not the right motivation. And we have to beware of these types of spiritual leaders in the church and around the church. And we have to guard our hearts so that we don't become like those kind of leaders. It's, it's difficult, especially when, when pastors and, and ministers that are risen or raised up to this celebrity status and, they're, and they're, their churches begin to grow and people begin to come in in droves and they become famous and, and social media makes them famous and, and, and book deals make them famous and all of these things and celebrity begins to creep into the heart of a pastor, it will change their motivation. And their motivation will not be because I love the sheep that God has put before me that he's given me charge over. It's that I've got to make sure I'm getting paid. I've got to make sure the church is bringing in enough money and Jesus says, when your motivation is money, your dedication will be conditional. And that's the other difference between the good shepherd and the hired hand. His motivation is for money and his dedication is conditional. Because what does he do when the first sign of trouble shows up, Jesus says? He leaves. He leaves the sheep. Jesus says when, when threat comes, when danger comes at the first sign of a threat, he leaves. Why? Because his own motivation is to take care of himself. He can't make money if he's dead. If he allows the enemies, he's not going to put the hired hand, is not going to put himself between danger and his sheep. If he has to make a choice, he's always going to choose self-preservation. He's always going to run. He's going to bail. And we see that many, many times as well. We can't, that, that's the type of leaders that Israel had. They were motivated. Their motivation was unpure. They were driven by money and wealth and, and power and fame and those kind of things. And their dedication was conditional as long as it wasn't going to hurt them. As long as there wasn't a threat against them, they were good. But the first sign of danger and threat against their own self-interest, 
they bail. But the good shepherd, Jesus says, lays down his life for the sheep. Think about what it says in Psalm 23, verse 4. David said, even when I go through the darkest valley or the the valley of the shadow of death, I fear no evil or danger for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. The hired hand doesn't walk the sheep through the valley of death because it's too dangerous. There's too much to risk. But Jesus, David says the good shepherd, what makes God such a good shepherd is he's constantly present. There's not a danger that he ever bails on. There's nothing that ever comes against us that he says, I'm just going to step aside right here and let you do your best. That's not the kind of shepherd he is. And it says your rod and your staff, they comfort me. If you go back to that series, we talked about the rod and the staff and how the, the staff um, and the rod are different. And the rod was the offensive weapon of the shepherd. If he had to defend his sheep, he used his rod. It was like his, like his baseball bat. Like he would, he would go after animals and, and predators who would come against the sheep. That's how he defended them. And David says, your rod comforts me. The fact that I know my shepherd is going to stand between me and danger. He's going to stand between me and death, and he is going to fight, and the good shepherd will lay down his very life. If it means that he has to die to take care of his sheep, he'll do it. And this is Jesus. Jesus says, I am that shepherd. I'm the perfect shepherd. There's no superficial superficial motivation in Jesus, and there's no conditional dedication in Jesus. He is always there. And what's the greatest picture of that? It's the cross. It's what we've sang about this morning. The the cross is the picture of that ultimate sacrifice. He said, the good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. And when he says this, it's before he's done it. We have the benefit of hindsight. We read this and go, yes, of course, Jesus, we know. Because we saw you do it. But they hadn't seen him do it yet. And I'm sure many people who heard Jesus say this go, what are you talking about? He was telling them what he was going to do for them. He was telling them why he was going to prove himself to be the good shepherd. And he sacrificed his life, his physical life, for the safety of our spiritual life. And I, I started thinking about how we as believers... And we sang, we were singing that song that we're saved, we are saved. And you know, if, we, if you're a believer in Christ, and we've seen it, you've seen people that you know and loved and have had some of the deepest, closest relationship with Jesus die in some of the most horrific, horrible, gut-wrenching, Brutal ways. But yet still in the midst of that, because of what Jesus suffered on the cross, that believer, every believer, no matter how brutal or gruesome their death is, they're safe 
They're safe in, in, in all of it. Though they die, they're safe, protected spiritually by the battle that was fought for them by the good shepherd. That he stood between them and death. And no matter, no matter what faces them, that's why Paul could say, for me to live as Christ, to die as gain, there's no, there's no fear because of the presence of the shepherd. We're safe and secure because he's fought the battle for us. He's laid down his life for the sheep. Then look at verses 14 and 15. Look, he says it again. I am the good shepherd. I know my own and my own know me. Talking about his sheep. Just as the Father knows me and I know the Father, I lay down my life for the sheep. You know, when I read this, I thought, okay, Jesus doesn't have to repeat himself because when Jesus says something, that stands on its own. That's strong enough. But if Jesus ever repeats himself, we should probably pay really close attention to that. And he does that here. He says, again, I am the good shepherd. He repeats himself. And then later at the end of verse 15, I lay down my life for the sheep. This is important. But then what he says in those verses before are so important. And here's the second thing that I think verses 14 and 15 are about. Jesus, as the good shepherd, gives his love to his sheep. He gives love to his sheep. And you say, well, G Eric, verses 14 and 15, the word love's not even in there. So where do you get that? These verses don't say anything about love. Oh, contraire. Verses 14 and 15 are all about love. Because to understand what Jesus means here, we have to understand what he means when he says to know. He says, I know my own and my own know me. He's not talking about an intellectual knowledge. And if you study that word to know, oftentimes in many contexts, the Old Testament and New Testament, that phrase to know is a relationship phrase. It's a phrase that's used oftentimes to describe the relationship between a husband and a wife. A deep intimacy, a relationship to know one another. And how appropriate is that? Because scripture calls the church the bride of Christ. The whole point of marriage is to be a picture of the relationship between Jesus and his church. So he says, they know me and I know them. It's not, it's not intellectual at all. It's about a relationship. He says, there's an intimate relationship between my own, my sheep, the sheep that are mine. They know me and I know them. And that gives us a greater understanding of what Jesus says in Matthew's gospel, in Matthew chapter 7. Look at these verses. Jesus speaks a warning here, and he says in verse 21, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only the one who does the will of my Father in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, 
Lord, didn't we prophesy in your name, drive out demons in your name, and do many miracles in your name? Didn't we do all the stuff, Jesus? Then I will answer, then I will announce to them, I never, what? Knew you. Depart from me, you lawbreakers. Now, maybe at one point in your life, you, you read this. We've read these verses, these words of Jesus before, and these are hard words. And maybe you've read these before, maybe when you were younger, or even right now, you read that and go, okay, that's kind of weird. Why would, any, why would Jesus stand before anybody and say, I never knew you? Jesus is God. He's omniscient, right? He has, he has this perfect knowledge of us. He created us. We talk about how we were formed together, put together in our mother's womb. He, he knows every little detail about us. So this doesn't make sense. Why does anybody stand in front of Jesus at the judgment and he looks and goes, I don't know who you are. What's your, who are you? And so we can read it that way and go, that doesn't make sense. But when we understand it in the context of relationship, it makes perfect sense. These are people, these people who question Jesus in verse 22 are the people who are well acquainted with all of the information about Jesus. They know who he is. They have all the knowledge and the learning of the Bible, so much so that they can go out and do works that other people would look at and go, wow, that's real. But when it's, when it's before Jesus, it's not real. It's all based on this this intellectual knowledge of who he is. And when he looks at them and says, I never knew you, he's not saying, hey, I've never seen you before or I don't know who you are. He's saying, I, I never knew you in a relationship. You knew all sorts of stuff about me. You read the Bible through multiple times. You were in church every week. You went on mission trips. You did, you did all of these things, but I never knew you. We were never in a relationship. Jesus would never say he doesn't know somebody because of his lack of intellect. But what Jesus says is that I know my sheep. He knows his sheep and his sheep know him. There's a relationship of love between the good shepherd and his sheep. And what's even more mind-blowing is the nature of this relationship that Jesus says he has with his sheep because he says it's like the relationship that he has with the Father. That the same way Jesus is in in, that in love he knows the Father and in love the Father knows him. It's like when, when we, are, we are brought into a relationship with Jesus, we're brought into, this, into the midst of this relationship between the Son and the Father. And we're invited into that. It's amazing. We experience the affection that... The father has for the son. The son has for the father. And, 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 and that becomes a part of our understanding and relationship with him. I think we have to stop and ask ourselves the question, do I know Jesus that way? 
Because you can know a lot about people and have zero relationship with them. All, all through the years of student ministry, I, I would notice, especially in teenagers, but it's also true of adults, how we can become such fans of celebrities and musicians and, and athletes to the point where we know everything about them. I know students and adults right now who can tell you everything you want to know about Taylor Swift. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> everything. And they'll tell you some things about Taylor Swift that you don't want to know. <laughs> they, they, you don't care to know. You're not interested in it at all, but they know. They can tell you everything. Uh, it, it's a joke in our house that, that Tyler is like the walking Wikipedia for like any like athletes, especially if they're a, a University of Georgia football player. He'll tell you anything you want to know about them. I mean, he, he, he has the knowledge. But those people who are such big fans, take Taylor Swift, for instance. I know people who know everything about her inside and out. But if they walked into a room with her, she would never know anything. She would never know who they were. And she would walk, walk right past them. You know why? Because she doesn't know them. We don't have relationships with these people. We have information about them. But none of us would be foolish or delusional enough to say that we have a relationship with somebody like that. But we can so easily fool ourselves into a relationship with Jesus that isn't really there. Because we know all the stuff. To be known by the shepherd is to be intimately and deeply loved by the shepherd. And to experience a, a deep intimate affection for the shepherd. And then finally, look at verse 16. It's the last thing this morning in verse 16. Jesus says, but I have other sheep that are not from this sheep pen. I must bring them also and they will listen to my voice. Then there will be one flock, one Shepherd. Here's the last of the three this morning. Jesus brings unity to among his sheep. He brings unity to his sheep. And see, he's speaking to the Jews here. And, and most of the people Jesus was talking to believed that salvation was only for them. That God had chosen them as a people and the kingdom was for them and salvation were, was for them because they were his chosen people. They thought they were the only ones who were going to get into the kingdom. You know anybody like that? The pen Jesus speaks of is Judaism. They, they think that they're getting into the kingdom because of their ethnicity and because of their lineage and their and, and, and their race. And, and he says, no. There are sheep that are coming out of this pen of Judaism that are, that are gonna, they're gonna hear my voice. They belong to me and they're gonna come and follow me. But I've got sheep somewhere else that are part of another, another pen. Do you know what that was? That's the Gentiles. That's us. 
Aren't you so glad that salvation wasn't just for the Jews? It's for us. We're, we are the ones he's talking about here in verse 16. I have other sheep that are not of this, this pen of Judaism, and I have to bring them also because they will listen to my voice. He brings unity. And then he speaks of a day at the end of verse 16, a day when there will be one flock and one shepherd. And that day hasn't, it, it, it's there, but we don't see it yet. Because we do, we live in a time of, of division. And there's two things, I think, about the kingdom that's to come that we can anticipate in what Jesus says here in verse 16. Number one, he says, there, there are other sheep and I must bring them too because they listen to my voice and, and one day we'll, it, it, there's gonna be one flock and one shepherd, he tells them. The kingdom is way more diverse than we think it is. It's way more diverse than we think it is. I'm, I'm amazed at groups of people and even denominations that will be so bold to say that they're the only ones that are going to get into heaven. We're Baptists. We don't say that. You may think it sometimes, though, if you're honest, right? Y'all, that's just dumb. That's just a dumb thing to think, that we are the only ones that have it figured out. That we're the only ones that are going to be a part of the kingdom. The kingdom is way more diverse. Praise God, the whole kingdom is not going to be like us. Amen. Be grateful for that. Celebrate it. And so unity, if unity is going to be a part of the kingdom later, then that also means that unity should reflect what we do right now. Because we represent the kingdom now. Heck, unity is not even an issue that, that Baptists have figured out yet. <laughs> no, let's don't worry about other denominations. Let's just worry about, we can't even get together. But we should. There should be a unity that brings us together. When Jesus in his model prayer said, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. What do we think the kingdom looks like in heaven? And you say, well, Eric, you sound really close to being one of those non-denominational people. Are you? No, I'm not. I like being Southern Baptist and I'm a Southern Baptist for a reason. Because I, I'm going to say this, and I want to say this in a way that I hope makes sense. That division for the sake of doctrine and practice is good for the unity of the church. And that may sound counterintuitive. But let's think about it. If, if we were, if all of Christendom, if we were just all gathered together and we all worshiped together... I don't think any of us could focus on Jesus because everybody would be practicing different ways of worship. There would be doctrines. And the whole time we're supposed to be having our eyes on Jesus, we would all be looking at each other going, I can't believe they're doing that. Look at them. Look at them doing that. Did you hear what they said? 
I can't believe they said that. That's so wrong. And so I, I think denominationalism for, for, for doctrine and for practice, we, we have different ideas about who God is because we're trying to figure out the truth because God's word is that we, we, he, he's beyond us. So we, we practice doctrine in different ways as we're trying to come to an understanding. But the reason there's going to be one flock and one shepherd in eternity is because we won't have to guess anymore. We won't, have to, we won't have to wonder which one is right because what's right will be right in front of our face. And all of us will see it and we'll all look at the truth and go, wow, we got that wrong. There won't be any need for that. We need those divisions. We, we need those now because if we, if we didn't, we would all be so distracted by one another, we, we couldn't focus on Jesus. So, so we, that, that's okay that we have denominations that practice different doctrine and different, different practices of worship. That's okay. It's, so we can all focus on Jesus in those divisions. So that's what I mean by denominations, I, I think, help the unity of the church in that way. That we're not constantly fighting among each other. But, the, but what we should know is that our divisions don't have to separate us. You say, well, that doesn't make sense. That's what a division does. Yeah, but our denominations don't have to separate us. We can still be unified under, under the essential, essential doctrines of our faith. The things that we all agree on, we can be unified under. And there's pictures of those, but... But man, waiting for the glory of all things being made new and seeing this new unity that God will give his people, that Jesus will bring all of his sheep together and they'll all be one. They'll be one shepherd, one flock. No more disagreement about what's true and what's not. What is God like? What does he think about this? What does he think about that? We, nobody will have to wonder because he'll be right there. And we will all behold him and we will all see the same truth together. So this is the good shepherd that Jesus is. He brings unity to his sheep. He gives them an intimate love relationship. And he gives his very life for his sheep. He lays down his life. Look at Matthew chapter 9. We can be, those of us that are a part of that, that have, have that kind of relationship with the shepherd, we can glory in it and we can, we can be grateful for it and worship in the truth of it. But Matthew 9, verses 35 and 36, it says, Jesus continued going around to all the towns and villages, teaching in their synagogues, preaching the good news of the kingdom, and healing every disease and every sickness. And when he saw the crowds, he felt compassion for them because they were distressed and dejected like sheep without a shepherd. Like this is the reality that we live in. And I have to pray and ask God to give me the same compassion for the sheep that Jesus has. 
I don't have compassion for sheep. Do you? I mean, think about it literally. If a sheep, if a sheep comes wandering into my yard, like I'm calling somebody. Like, what is that thing doing here? It may have a disease. I don't know what's up with that. Call somebody, come get this thing. Like, I don't have compassion for sheep. Any of y'all have compassion? You just love you. You bring them in your house. You take care of them. You know, yeah, that can, no. Like, I don't have compassion for sheep. The only one that feels compassion for sheep is a, is a good shepherd. A good shepherd has compassion for sheep. That's why Eric is a bad shepherd. I would be a horrible shepherd because I don't have any compassion for sheep. But the shepherd sees and knows and loves the sheep like no one else. And that's what makes him a good shepherd. He knows us. He knows us in that loving, intimate relationship. And when he sees people with no shepherd, he has compassion for them. Do we have that compassion? For the lost. Do we have that compassion for people who we see every day who are wandering around and they have no clue that they're even lost? Matthew chapter 18 is another place. Matthew chapter 18, starting in verse 12, Jesus uses this illustration again. What do you think? If someone has a hundred sheep and one of them goes astray, won't he leave the 99 on the hillside and go and search for the stray? And if he finds it, truly I tell you, he rejoices over that sheep more than over the 99 that did not go astray. In the same way, it is not the will of your Father in heaven that one of these little ones perish. He uses this illustration of of 99 sheep and one is missing. And he says, won't he leave the 99 on the hillside and go search for the stray? Only if he's the shepherd. Only if he's the shepherd. The hired hand won't do that. The hired hand counts and says 99's good enough. 99's good. I'm only missing one. That's not a big deal. But this is a picture of Jesus as a shepherd. He says, no, I leave the 99. And sometimes we, we I, I think sometimes we can read that illustration of, of leaving the 99 to go find the one. And we picture just this, this big group of sheep just wandering around on the hillside. And the shepherd says, hey, I'm not worried about you guys. I'm going to go find the one. And then the 99 are just roaming around everywhere. No, because right before this, Jesus has already talked about the fold. He doesn't just leave the 99 wandering around on the hill. No shepherd does that. But he leaves the 99 after he makes sure that he's got them all in the fold and they're all safe. At the end of the day, he brings them in and as he's counting and looking over them, and he gets to 99, and that's all of the sheep, and he knows there's 100, and he knows the one that's missing, and he knows it by name, and he knows what it looks like. And he says, now that I have these 99 secure, and they're in the fold, and they're safe, now I'm going out to find the one. 
That's the kind of compassion that only a shepherd has. And if you know the love of God, if you know the love of Jesus, the way Jesus says that his sheep will know him, it's because you were the one. We can very much identify ourselves with the 99, but we can never, we can never, ever stop knowing that we were the one. That was us. That was me. Gone. Far away. But he came looking for me, and it says when he finds the one, he rejoices over that one. Because he is good. He's full of love and compassion. He finds us. He calls us by name. And when he calls us by name, we follow his voice. And so the question this morning is simply, have you really known Jesus that way? Have you known him in this context as the good shepherd? Do you, do you know him as, as in a relationship with him? Where you know him and he knows you the way he talks about here, or has your knowledge of Jesus just been intellectual? You say, I've never really felt loved by Jesus. If you've never felt the love of Jesus in a way that was so clear, then you don't know the shepherd. And when you hear the voice of the shepherd, you know, I don't have to tell you whether you've ever been loved by God. I don't, I don't have to tell you what that looks like or give you a checklist. If you've, if you've felt the love of Jesus, you know it. If you've been in a relationship with Jesus, a real relationship with Jesus, you know it. And if you haven't, you, you know that too. How do you know him? 